to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. for reading the scripture this morning at City on a Hill. We put a very high value on God's word. We believe it is inerrant, meaning that it is without error, uh, that it's authoritative, that um, it, it tells us how we are called to live in light of who God is and how he created us. And so we read it every week and we say, this is the word of the Lord as a symbol of us submitting ourselves underneath God's word. And so I'm so glad that you're here today. Uh, if I didn't meet you at the beginning, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here. Excited that you would choose to join us for worship today. If you are a guest, we have a blue card you can find in your seat. Uh, fill out that card, give us a way to contact you. And we'll, we'll just love to follow up with you, tell you more about City on a Hill, how we can figure out how we can serve you. Uh, and for doing so, we'll give you a $5 gift card to Third Clip Bakery, which is just right down the street, uh, as well as make a donation of $5 uh, in your name to a list from a list of charities we'll send to you via email. So all you gotta do is just respond to that email and tell us where you would like us to send that. And you can drop it in the black box on your right on the way out uh, the door. Uh, our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. Gospel means good news, that we're, the good news that we were once separated from God because of our sinful choices. Uh, we were due death and punishment, yet Jesus took that punishment on himself. He took it upon himself on the cross to free us from sin and death, that we could have life in him. And so anyone who's not entered into that relationship, I would love to share with you how to do so today. Secondly, community. God created us for a relationship with other people where we get to celebrate that good news together. So we gather together in community groups uh, around, us, around the city to encourage one another, to uh, talk about Jesus, and also to love and serve our neighbors. So if you're not connected to a community group, we'd love to help you do so. There's a yellow card you'll find in your seat. Just mark community groups. And again, drop it in the box in the back. We'll follow up with you. And then lastly, mission. We uh, join God in his mission. God is, uh, is, uh, has a mission to extend his glory to the end of the world. And so as people who've received good news, we go tell good news. We tell people about what Christ has done for us. And also we serve our neighbors in the same ways that Jesus has served us. Uh, and speaking of that, a couple of announcements before we jump in. One way we can do this is this coming Saturday uh, at four o'clock, we're gonna be joining um, uh, over at the Boston Housing Authority for a block party. Uh, and so this, uh, this is gonna be this Saturday. And really all you gotta do is just come and join. So we have a team uh, from Northbrook Church that's gonna be joining us this next weekend. Uh, they'll be actually leading us in worship. They'll be uh, doing childcare for us next weekend uh, or uh, childcare, uh, Kids ministry, Heather would, would strangle me for saying that. Kids ministry, not childcare. Um, uh, they'll be doing that to, to bless us and bless our, our volunteers next weekend. But they're also gonna be leading us in this block party. And we did this last month, had a great response. We're gonna do it again. And really just want you to come and get to know some neighbors uh, over at the Housing Authority. Just be a smiling presence eat a snow cone, jump in the jump house. It'll be a lot of fun. So if you are interested in coming and being a part of that, we just love to know that you're coming. Go to our event page, coahforesthills.org slash events, and just mark that you'd like to come and we'll get you some more information on that. 
If you're looking to take the next step with City on a Hill and get a little more involved and just figure out who we are as a church, coming up on June 10th, Friday, June 10th, we're having our next Discover class. This is a great way to figure out what we believe, our distinctives. If you're ready to take the next step towards membership, this is the first step in that process. So I would invite you to come to that class on Friday the 10th. That is the wrong slide. I apologize, the wrong date. It should say Friday, uh, June 10th. Uh, at from 6 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. We're not time travelers. We can't go back, sorry. June 10th, um, you can sign up at, again, at the event page, coah forestills.org slash events, and, uh, and you can get si- uh, signed up for that. And then lastly, Kiss Humber Adventure is coming up in July. I know July is only two months away. That's wild, right? And so for kids, if you're a kiddo and you'd like to be a part of it, this is for, uh, for um, first through fifth graders. Um, uh, be sure to scan that code. If you would, would like to volunteer during that week, we, we need volunteers to help with that Kids Summer Adventure uh, Bible, Bible Study um, Week. So we'd love for you to do that as well. Um, this morning, we're starting a new series in the book of James. And if you've never read the book of James, it's toward the back of the Bible. It's a very small book. It's only a few chapters. Um, but it's a really interesting book of the Bible because it is so different than anything that you read in the New Testament. It's a very different book. In fact, it is a letter. If you look at the top of your, of, of your uh, copy of God's Word, if you have it with you. By the way, if you don't, we would love to give, gift you a Bible. Let us know. We'll give you one. Um, but if you look at the top, it may say the letter of James. This is a letter that was written by James to a group of people. And it's different than, say, Paul's letters. Paul wrote 13 different letters, many of them to churches or to individuals. Um, this is not written to a specific church. This is what's called a general letter or epistle, which is a a fancy word for letter. And it, it probably went to a church, one particular church first, but then began to circulate around the known world. So it's a little bit different than some of Paul's letters. It's, it's more general in tone, uh, but it's also different in tone. So, so Paul would focus a lot on being justified by faith. He'd talk about being saved by grace. And if you look at that and you compare it to James and you kind of put them on the same level and read them the same way, they look like they're contradicting each other, right? Because Paul is saying you're saved by, by grace through faith. And James is saying that faith without works is dead. You're saved by your works. Are these two books, these two ideas, these these different letters, are they in conflict with each other? In fact, I don't believe they're conflicting with each other, even though James feels like a bunch of to-dos that doesn't seem to fit with Paul. In fact, it's not contradicting Paul. We're still saved by faith through through grace by faith. But what happens is James is a great complement to Paul. And so there's, actually, there's, a, there's a medical term called keratinemia. Anybody familiar with what that is? You ever seen a baby that turned orange looking like a former president? I know that was low, uh, but sorry, look like a former president. You ever seen that? What happens is if you feed a baby too many carrots or sweet potatoes or, or, or an orange baby food, they will literally begin to turn orange and it's called keratinemia. What you do to balance that out is you have to give them peas. You got to give them, you know, all the green mushy stuff that no baby really wants to eat. But the baby has to have it to have a balanced diet. In the same way, we have to balance Paul with James. James is a great complement and a great corrective for us because yes, we are saved by grace through faith, but it doesn't mean that we get to go and live however we want to live. 
It doesn't mean that there should be no change after we place our faith in Jesus. It doesn't mean that we just simply say a prayer or make a confession and then nothing is new or different. What is happening, what James is saying is that there should be an outward evidence of the work of Christ in you. There should be an outward evidence that comes out in what you do. And if you understand the grace of God, you see what you've been freed to do. You've been freed to obey God. And so what is James really trying to get across? We see this, uh, some clues in verse one. If you look at any ancient letter, it follows this pattern. It would give you who wrote the letter. It would tell you a little bit about them. Um, It would say who the recipient of the letter was, and there would be a general greeting. So James says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes and the dispersion, greeting. So we see this and we see some clues in there and it begins with who James is. Now, James is a very common name. It'd be like you're in Boston and somebody finds out I live in Boston. They're like, oh, great. Do you know my friend John? Like, well, no, because there are a million Johns in Boston. There were a lot of Jameses and there were a lot of James in the Bible. And we got to kind of figure out which one we're dealing with. There are a few options. It could be James, the brother of John, the sons of thunder. It could have been James, the son of Alphaeus, who were both disciples of Jesus who walked with him for three years on the earth. But we actually believe that this is James, the brother of Jesus. And this is a really, really big deal because James was not one of the 12. He wasn't one of the original 12 disciples. He didn't believe until later. He became an apostle later. In fact, in John chapter seven, he thought Jesus was crazy. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He thought Jesus was having delusions of grandeur and he didn't believe until after the resurrection. And I think this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, only lists James by name. It says that Jesus appeared to James and then the others. He specifically named James because why would that matter? Because your family knows you better than anybody. Your family knows all of your shortcomings. They know all of your sins. They know all of your struggles. I have a brother named Brian. He will probably eventually visit Boston. I'm not letting him tell you any stories about me, okay? Nobody would have known Jesus better than James. But yet he still follows. He finally saw that he was the Messiah and he trusted him. And this gives weight to these words that this is someone who knows Jesus better than anybody else and says, this guy is the real deal. But notice how James describes himself. And this is what leads to some of the confusion. He doesn't say, hey, I'm the brother of Jesus. He's not name dropping to like get Red Sox tickets. He says, I'm a servant of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We see someone approaching us with such humility that he wouldn't even brag that he's Jesus's brother. This is someone who's received grace and been humbled by it. And you can imagine when Jesus appeared to James, James is thinking, man, I got to eat some crow. I got to look my brother in the face and admit that I was wrong. And instead of condemning him and telling him, I told you so, I imagine Jesus looking at him and forgiving him and embracing him and enjoying him. And James is humbled by this. And we see through the story of the Bible that James eventually becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and that's what gives weight to his words when he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The the, the phrase there, the 12 tribes, I know we're getting a lot of background here, but this is important. The term, the 12 tribes, is a term or terminology for the nation of Israel. They were made up of 12 tribes. Here, he's using that same terminology to describe the church. He's saying, this is spiritual Israel. These are God's people. These are people who've been brought into all the promises that God had for Israel. And he's writing to them 
from Jerusalem to a people who've been scattered from Jerusalem. You look back at Acts chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, we see that the church was dispersed through persecution. And so he is writing this letter to a people who about nine years after that event, and he's giving them counsel on how to live in the midst of suffering and trial and struggle. And so the best way for us to understand James is is as wisdom literature. This is wisdom for God's people who've already placed their faith in Christ to know how to live in the world. And if you read it, it's almost like bullet points. It reads like the Proverbs. It's like, here's some wisdom and here's a little more wisdom. And things kind of oftentimes feel disconnected. But what the connecting point is, is that we need wisdom to understand how to live in a godly way. It's, the, the, the theme here is not do these things and earn salvation, but because you've been saved, but because you have an unshakable hope in the finished work of Christ, you can live this way. Lean on Jesus and this will be the outcome. And so wisdom is applying what you know about God to life. Tony Evans says that true wisdom is gaining God's perspective through his word and then applying that truth to life. Now, here's what makes Christianity unique. Is Christianity admits that you're gonna face problems in this world. It doesn't run from the problem of pain and suffering. It doesn't give you a promise that if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll never suffer again. It doesn't give you a promise that that if you would just get above it mentally, then you will never struggle. Because in, uh, in verse two, it says, count in all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Not if you meet trials. We are going to have hard times. There are some worldviews that say your suffering and your trials are a punishment. The idea of karma, if you really, people like karma on the positive side, right? If you do the right things, then good things happen to you. But the negative side of karma, which is, it's a a false ideology, is that if you do the wrong things, you're being punished. So therefore, whatever you do is a punishment and it's just. Others would say, you just need to get above it. But Christianity says that suffering is part of living in a broken world, but yet there is hope for it. So we need wisdom to face it. And that's the very first thing that James talks about. So let's look at suffering and wisdom that we need for it. So the first thing we see is that there are trials and sufferings and our trials and suffering have a purpose. Have a purpose. See, the other truth about Christianity is not only that we'll, will we suffer, not only will we face trials, but that our trials are not meaningless. That's why he says, count it all joy. What does that mean? It doesn't, it doesn't mean that your trials are joyful. I mean, I don't think we should be excited and smiling when bad things happen to us. It's not saying there's not room to mourn. It's not saying there's not room to lament. It's not saying there's not room to struggle. But it's also not saying that you can only be happy when your trials are over. What's being said here is that there is real joy to be found in Christ. We counted joy because we're looking ahead to the hope we have in him in the midst of our suffering. Not not because of our suffering, but because of what our suffering and our trials produce in us and the hope that awaits us. And what this actually allows us to do is it allows us to suffer it allows us to mourn. It allows us to sorrow because our sorrow isn't hopeless. We can feel a full range of emotions before God and before others, trusting that God is using this to draw us to himself. Now, for some, the idea of trials and suffering are a massive stumbling block to Christianity. How could God be good 
How can it be real if they're suffering? And I want to dig into that question just a little bit and dig into that struggle a little bit because there's actually two ideas jammed into one. There's this, there's this mix of our view of goodness and God's existence. And so this is actually kind of circular thinking. It's this idea that if there is a God, he has to be good. And we would say, amen. But since suffering exists, he can't be good, so there's no God. That's just a giant circle. But the reality is that suffering is actually a proof for the existence of God, not against it. And why do we know this? Because your reaction to bad news, your reaction to suffering, your reaction to trials when you get bad news or a diagnosis or you're heartbroken, you don't say, well, that's normal. We don't say that that's the way it's supposed to be. There's this sense of heartbreak within us that says, this is not supposed to be like this. This is, this is wrong. And if there was no God, we would just assume that this is the way it's supposed to be. Like, okay, well, well I, guess, I guess this is it. But Tim Keller says the very fact that you're outraged at suffering proves that you're not built for it, that you're not from a world like this, that there's hope, that there's a God. In other words, if you decide, I don't believe in God because of suffering, you created a much, much bigger problem than Christians have because now you can't even define suffering. You can't even be disgusted about it. You can only be disgusted about it if you know what, that deep in your heart, this isn't right. That, the, that can only happen if there's a place where this doesn't exist. We believe there's a place and the world was created for, uh, for, a, for a, a life of, of not, where we wouldn't suffer. But what about God's goodness? Maybe it's actually our view of how God addresses suffering that's a little off kilter. One thing, thinker said that we view the world in such a way that we think all of our, our happiness should come from here. All of our happiness should come from the world. And so when that gets out of sort, when we think about God being good and addressing our suffering, it often we think of God, get me out of this problem. Get me, get me out of this situation. And the solution is removal of our trials but God's solution was a cross. God's solution was sending his very own son to suffer like we would suffer, to suffer once and for all, to deal with sin and death once and for all so that our hope could lie beyond this world in such a way that we could have present hope, meaning that our trials could have deeper meaning and deeper purpose. And this is why James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, Four, there's a, there's a reason for this. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Our trials and suffering are meant to produce something in us and God has an intention for our trials, for us to persevere, for us to endure in, in such a way that it would test our faith, not to see if it's genuine, that's not what's being said here. It's not to see whether you're a Christian or not. In fact, James has a very positive outlook. He's saying, I believe God is going to grow you through this. It's like gold. When you put gold into a fire, you begin to melt away all of the impurities. And what happens is the gold that remains is stronger. And what happens through our trials and through our suffering is it produces a steadfastness that gives us an ability to stand firm and not be blown over by the trials of life. That the only way that you and I can grow as followers of Jesus is through 
resistance. That's why running is not a very good way to build muscle. You don't build muscle through running. You build muscle through resistance training. That's why you see most runners are like this big around and you see the guys who like power lifters have no neck. And if you see a power lifter lifting, I think you need you probably do both if you're gonna exercise. Um, if you're, you see a power lifter, they know the only way to get stronger is you just gotta put more weight on the bar and you've gotta push yourself and you've gotta go through this painful process of breaking down muscle in order to build it back again. And what God does is he breaks us down through suffering and through trials as he builds us to be stronger. He builds us to endure, to face all the trials of life. But what kind of trials do we face? We see here in verse two, various kinds. And I think James is doing this on purpose to leave the door wide open, to leave the door open in such a way that any of us could find ourselves in this. And so we see that the dispersion, these people spread around the world are facing poverty, they're facing ill treatment, they're facing religious persecution, but this invites us in as well when we face the trials of sickness and loss and and, and chronic pain and, and hardship and, and money problems and family struggles and, 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 and the countless things that we face in this life. And I want you to listen to me. I don't know the mind of God. I, I don't understand why God does some things and I don't understand why you might be going through what you're going through. But here's what I do know. God loves you and he wants good for you. He loves you and he wants good for you. And that's why verse four says that, And it says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Meaning that God uses our trials and our sufferings to make us complete, to shape us into godliness, to bring every area of our life under the lordship of Jesus. And that is our greatest good. Jackie Hill Perry says that God is so much more committed to my sanctification. In other words, what makes me holy, what makes me more like Jesus, than he is my comfort. And so that being the case, then he is good to me because he is showing me him in these difficulties. What God does in the middle of our sufferings, he gives us himself. He's with you in your trials as one who faced trials for you. And if you look at Hebrews 12, why does it tell us that Jesus endured the cross? For what? For the joy set before him. He suffered so your suffering isn't final, but so that you could enter into that same joy. And the way that we do this, the way that we endure is not pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. It's not us locking in and trying harder and being tougher. Sometimes steadfastness means you're laying on the floor before God. So sometimes steadfastness is a desperation before him saying, I have nowhere else to turn. It, it might be like when you feel like you can't get up, but this steadfastness is about proximity to the Lord. It's about understanding that you have a God that you can hold fast to because he holds fast to you. There's an old hymn written by an evangelist in the 1800s named R.A. Torrey uh, called, He Will Hold Me Fast. And I don't have time to read the entire hymn, but there's just such beauty in this about the steadfastness of Jesus, which holds us up. And it says, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. When we face the trials of life, Jesus holds us fast. 
And when you face those, when you face suffering, my question is, is what is your prayer? If you're like me, my prayer is usually, God, get me out of this. God, remove this. God, help me get past this. And I don't think that's a wrong prayer. I think we should pray for those things. I think we should pray for healing. I think we should pray for uh, for removal of, of difficult circumstances. But also, I think we need to add this prayer. God, use this to deepen my trust in you. God, use this to glorify your name. Use this to make me more like Jesus. And the reason is, is that James, and I believe this is the Lord's desire too, is that we would lack in nothing. And then immediately in verse five, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask for it. What's being said there is that there is wisdom to help us face the trials of our lives. So secondly, the second idea is that wisdom helps you face trials and suffering. We need wisdom to help us face these in the middle of everyday life. And the Bible, if you read the Bible, it prizes wisdom as something needed more than anything else, something that you and I should pursue as it helps us look at our lives in every situation correctly. Wisdom creates this grid or this lens through which we can see the world. Proverbs 8 says, "'Take my instruction instead of silver.'" and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that, you, uh, all that you may desire cannot compare with her. There's nothing greater that you and I could ask for and pursue than godly wisdom. It is what we need the most. It's what helps us live wisely in the world. It's what helps us live rightly before God. And so it's taking and applying what we know about God and applying it to any situation, including our suffering. So I want to do a quick thought experiment. I know a lot of times we don't get to talk in church. This is your opportunity. I'm going to do a little thought experiment. I want to just take a moment and I want you to actually speak back to me. Tell me a truth that you know about God that's comforting. I'll put you on the spot, I know. Yell it out so I can hear it. He's good. God, let's say again. He's slow to anger. Say again, loves you how you are in every moment. Somebody else? He's merciful. Is that what you said? Mercy, yeah. He loves you. We take all of those, his goodness, his mercy, his love, his acceptance of us. And what wisdom is, is taking those truths that we know in our head, we read them in our Bible, we hear them on a Sunday, we hear other people talk about it, and then begin to apply them in the middle of life when it starts to fall apart. It's taking those truths and applying them to difficult situations and that's one reason our mission statement as a church is leading people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. What is that? That is pursuing wisdom. Wisdom helps us see God and see the world and see ourselves rightly and correctly so we can live God-glorifying lives. Now notice, what does, what does James tell us to do if we lack wisdom? He says to ask. He says, ask for it. Ask God. Ask the one who's the owner and the source of all wisdom. Ask him for it. And this is a God who gives it to us generously. Everything you need for facing this life is found in knowing God. And wisdom is truly to know him. And this means that 
if he's telling you to ask, what does that mean he, for you? He, it means he wants you to have it. I grew up in the South, and I think I've used this example before, but in the South, uh, when you ask for something at someone's house, or someone asks you if you want something, you, you have to deny it. So if you go to somebody's house, and they're like, would you like something to drink? And they, you say, no, 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 I'm good. And you have to deny it twice to get to the third ask to make sure that they actually want to give it to you. And if they don't ask a third time, then they didn't really want to give it to you. They were just being polite. God is not just being polite. He wants you to ask, and he wants to give it to you. He he delights in doing so. Matthew chapter seven says, ask, seek, and knock, because the Lord desires and delights in giving good gifts to his children. Do Do you believe that? Do you believe that God wants you to ask him for wisdom? The one thing God desires to give us and delights to give us more than anything else is wisdom, because that is the key to knowing him. The key to knowing him. The entire Bible... It talks about God revealing himself, inviting us, wooing us, calling us to himself. And so when we ask God, we can trust in the promise that we do so and we can ask without reproach. God is not going to turn us away. He's not going to mock us. He's not going to wonder why we're there. He desires to give us this wisdom. But then if you look at verse six, it's, it's a bit like spiritual whiplash, right? God says, ask freely, but you better ask in faith. That seems strange, doesn't it? Ask freely, but you better ask with faith, in faith, with no doubting. Doesn't God say to ask us and he'll give it to us freely? See, this is where we can get in trouble if we don't understand the entire context of the Bible. Now, the Bible is not saying you can never doubt. He's not saying you can't doubt. There are certain types of doubt and different types of doubt that we see in the scriptures. And if you look at Jude, toward the end of Jude, it talks about how we should deal with doubting. And it says, some people you deal with their doubting with patience. Some people you deal with their doubting through warning. Others, you snatch them from the fire. So what we see are three different types of doubt. And these types of doubt, there's different types of responses. There is room for doubt and struggle. There's room to take these things and go to Jesus and say, you know what? I don't fully understand this, but I trust you. I don't know that I fully believe this. I'm wrestling with it, but God, I'm gonna sit myself under your lordship and your authority. Our salvation, the strength of it is not your ability to believe, but in the strength of the one we believe in. That's not the type of doubt we're talking about. The type of doubt we're talking about here is almost like somebody who's living with two personalities. It's like spiritual split personalities. And verse eight gets at this as it describes this person as a double-minded man, literally meaning two souls, like like a split personality. This is not momentary, occasional doubt. These aren't, aren't struggles, but this is a hypocritical person who's living one way one day and another way the next. And what's being described here is a person whose heart is so captivated by culture that that's where we get our wisdom from. Someone who's more interested in what's on Instagram than what's in the scripture. Someone who's more interested in their own wisdom and we're just kind of cruising along with really no regard for God's wisdom until things fall apart. Until life becomes just too much for us to handle. And what we're saying is saying, now I need your help. Now I'm gonna come to you with, for wisdom. And what we're saying in this is we're saying, I'm really going to live how I want to. I'm going to do what I want to. I'm going to believe what I want to 
until I need something from you. And we treat God and his word like a spiritual buffet and we say, I'm just gonna take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and I'm gonna leave the rest because I don't like it and it makes me uncomfortable. And what we're saying when we approach God like this is we're saying, God, I want your direction, but I don't want you. And that's why verse seven says, don't suppose you'll receive anything from God. Now, is God being harsh? No. And here's why. If you look back at verse five, there's no qualification on who can ask. It says, if any lacks wisdom, let him ask. God wants you to ask. And he never said that he wouldn't answer you. But God loves you so much that he will not settle for giving you wisdom, a bunch of how-tos apart from a relationship with him. And our greatest need is not getting out of a bad situation. It's a relationship with God. And I think we so clearly see this in the story of the prodigal son, where the prodigal son finally comes to his senses after spending all his father's money and telling his father he basically wished him dead. All his money's gone, he's destitute. And his solution is, is I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna work for dad. I'm not gonna try to be his son. I need to get myself out of my debt. I need to get myself through these problems. And he comes to his father with all these things he's basically asking for direction on. And what does the father do? He embraces him. He embraces him almost to say like, no, no, we'll get to that. So somebody go get the fattened calf. Okay, no, we'll deal with those concerns. Somebody go get my ring. No, no, we'll sort all that out. Give, give him the finest code. Let's celebrate because my son is home. Our greatest need is a restored relationship with our father. And so right now, if you would say maybe you are like that double-minded person where you really just kind of want God's direction but not intimacy with him, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. I want you to fix your eyes on the one who suffered for you and face all that life could throw at him so that you could hope in knowing him. That is true wisdom. And God will begin to sort out all the rest. And if you're a Christian today, you call yourself a follower of Jesus. And if you're just kind of honest with yourself, you'd say, you know what? I'm not really living it. Uh, most of the time I'm like that double-minded man where I'm one way at work and I'm one way at home. And I kind of like check in, like clock in when I come to church. Know that Jesus wants all of you. This morning, if you're here and you don't yet know Jesus, maybe you're here this morning and you're looking for direction. You're, you're looking for answers. You're looking for wisdom because life is just hard. I want you to know this, that God hears you and he wants you. And the greatest gift he's given to you is the life, death, and resurrection of his son in your place. He wants your heart. He wants all of it. He wants you when life is hard. He wants you when life is easy. He wants you when there's joy and when there's sorrow to show you to know and enjoy Him forever. Let's give ourselves wholly to Jesus today. Let's pray. 